and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. For anyone on the left or centre-left, the past decade or so has been a terrible time in politics. We've groaned and raged, we've despaired of making our voices heard, and usually we haven't managed to do so. What's it done to us and how can we escape the cycle of rage, powerlessness and more rage? Raphael Baer is a Guardian columnist and the author of a new book, Politics, A Survivor's Guide. Welcome to The Bunker, Raphael. Thank you for having me in The Bunker. Thank you for having me back in The Bunker. The subtitle of the book is How to Stay Engaged Without Getting Enraged. Let me push back a little bit on that. Do we actually need the rage to get things done? Do we need a bit of grit in the oyster? Well, I definitely make the distinction in the book between anger, which is essential, and the kind of incapacitating rage that makes people want to throw up their hands and despair of politics. I quote Philip Roth, he says, anger is to make you effective. Uh, and if it doesn't make you effective, drop it like a hot potato. You know, that's its evolutionary function is to animate you. And that's very important because, yeah, exactly as you say, if you if you didn't get angry when you see injustice or when the system's not working, you, there would be no impulse to change anything. Whereas I think that there's, there's something different has gone on recently, which is a kind of impotent rage and a synthetic rage that is stirred. And you see it you know, a lot on social media, but I don't think it exists entirely because of or exclusively on social media. But a, a, a kind of a hollow, empty, but very noisy and, and powerful grievance that is actually really kind of inimical to the process of actively changing politics and and particularly the process of practically finding solutions. So yeah, the, the answer to your question is anger is important, but anger has to make you effective. So how do you know when you're not being effective anymore? Is it where you're being angry or is it how you're expressing your anger? How do you personally have felt in the past if you've, right, this has gone too far? Well, I think, well, certainly, I mean, on a personal level, uh, when it is a, a, a kind of Fury. I mean, the, the the Greek mythology of the Furies are these sort of vengeful goddesses of, of who sort of send you mad uh, as as sort of punishment for some terrible sin you've committed. I don't know what the sort of moderate centre left did to deserve the, the sort of the attack of the Furies, but no. So that and and you know that feeling because it's incredibly stressful. And, and the the episode I, I describe at the beginning of the book, which is was the sort of the spur to writing the thing, was I you know, had a massive heart attack and I, I didn't have a heart attack because. Britain left the European Union or anything, that would be weird. Um, you know, I had all sorts of other bad habits and dietary and, and the rest of it. But the immense stress that I felt running up to particularly the 2019 general election, when I look back on that time, it's actually the sort of the cognitive functions weren't operating properly. And is that, I mean, I don't, you could drill into the neuroscience of it if, if we like, and there's a bit of that in the book. But that sense that you know, you're, when you're, the kind of troglodyte, irrational part of your brain, your amygdala sort of hijacks the rest of your mental faculties so that you're not actually able to do the ruminative thinking and, and to take a step back and actually understand what's going on. And in, in practical terms, again, in answer to your question, you notice that when, particularly when you feel everything is ad hominem or everything, every criticism of a point has to be sort of witheringly sarcastic or directed at someone's underlying motive. And then you've, you've sort of, detached the function of empathy that would enable you to understand why someone who you really disagree with has reached the position that they've come to. And one of the big challenges for me in writing the book, and I don't, other people can judge whether I sort of solved it or not, is this tension between, on the one hand, still thinking that 
Brexit, for example, was a terrible idea and wrong and doesn't get any, doesn't get a better idea because a majority of people voted for it. It doesn't start being a good idea because it's just a settled now consensus in British politics. We have to do it. It's still a stupid idea. But if you then take that as the premise, which you, you no longer have an obligation to care about the interests and the needs and the political grievances of the people who really passionately wanted it and still feel it's very important to them, well, then you're just, you're not going anywhere. Then nothing moves forward. And how you do that, how you sort of combine empathy with your own values, your faith in your own values still being kind of true, I think that's hard across a whole range of policy and and not just in the UK. And there's a point in your book which where you, you make a point that some readers may well disagree with, which is that it is important in a democratic society to respect the result of elections. And that includes the referendum, even though it was so flawed. Yeah, I think that's true. And and I, I came to that realisation actually before even 2019, I think, and I was very ambivalent all the way through. Uh, and I, I, I went along to the rally, Remain rallies, the where people were demanding a second referendum. And even while that was going on, I, in the back of my mind, and sometimes I put it in print, was this qualms like, is this really working? And, and, and it's, it's, not, it's partly because the presentation, I mean, the, the fact is the People's Vote campaign was, I, I think it was Caroline Lucas actually described it as a sort of playpen of liberal grandees, of ancien regime grandees who sort of wanted, and it was just it sent all the wrong signals. But also in that, yeah, and we were everyone listening to this probably remembers that awful period where you know, there was this sort of trench warfare, where politics felt like the Western Front, and nothing was moving. But it was also in, a sense of incredible, so a combination of perpetual crisis and stasis at the same time. And what happened, as you, I'm sure, you remember, was that the Remain argument seemed to be winning all sorts of tactical positions in the weeds of parliamentary procedure. And what they, and by they I mean we, hadn't fully understood was that for a lot of people, the commanding heights of the argument had already been occupied on a more on a broader democratic proposition, which was people voted for it. Why isn't it happening? And the Brexit Party brilliantly mobilised that and manipulated that. And it comes back to the sort of paradox I was sort of alluding to earlier, which is particularly because when aspects of the Leave campaign and Leave campaigns, plural, were just vile and horrible and xenophobic and mobilised the most sort of atavistic, horrible kinds of politics. That gave Remainers a kind of permission to think, well, this is actually an assault on liberal democracy. So our values as Democrats, this is so nationalistic and points to an abyss into which we don't want our politics to slide. We have a moral high ground. And then, of course, the leavers think, well, actually, we have a democratic moral high ground because we voted for it, do it. And somewhere in that, there's just a tension between representative parliamentary democracy and direct plebiscitary democracy. And that, like, that's just a sort of constitutional theoretical tension. But somewhere also, there's this awful kind of moral deadlock where people like me got to feel self-righteous about ultimately being right and vindicated and the Leave campaign was fraudulent and they probably cheated in all sorts of ways and therefore it's not valid. And having to accept that, Unfortunately, it is also the case that it was an enormous democratic event and a lot of people turned out who'd never voted in their lives before and felt that this was the one opportunity they were getting to really change things. I mean, that's so I'm going on a bit, but that's the, the tragedy of it. And the thing I get so frustrated by and that I try and explore in terms of something that was paradoxically a genuine revolution 
and a massive heist and a fraud. And it can be those two things at the same time. And the Remainers were sort of genuinely behaving like a, a sort of a, a grumpy ancien regime who'd lost their privileges and were feeling a bit embittered about that and didn't really understand the country that they claimed to be sort of the for which they claimed to be the consensus, but also on the side of decency, moderation and liberal democracy. And those two things can be true at the same time. But it was incredibly difficult to articulate any of that in the middle of it when you're sinking into the bog of no man's land in a, in a you know, on the Western front of politics. Yeah, it was. And we got incredibly caught up with, as you say, the minutiae of parliamentary procedure and whether it was possible to use parliament in new and innovative ways to get through what we wanted and whether parliament or uh, the result of a referendum was supreme and all this kind of thing. But as you say, ultimately, the Leave campaign could always say to us, you don't trust the people. They voted and you're ignoring them. Yeah, and there is no, and, and and the argument that there is no such thing as one will of the people because there are multiple people with multiple wills, and politics is the business of mediating between conflicting interest groups, and therefore not everyone can get all of what they want all the time, and and that's that's how representative democracy works. That was a theoretical argument which was hard to make anyway, and then particularly when you've got the. You know, prominent figures on the other side basically accusing you of being a traitor, a saboteur, mobilising rhetoric that came directly from totalitarian regimes of the 1930s, the exact same idioms and formulae. It was hard not to react to that in a way that then confirmed the sense that you were having some completely hysterical overreaction to something that was actually democracy. And and it's, it, it, as I say, these things can coexist. And um, I remember talking to someone who's sort of a moderate conservative Remainer who said, you know, he's of all that's like, okay, you look at Parliament Square and there's you know, Steve Bray bellowing out his thing. And then there were counter campaign, it was sort of protest by leavers. But actually, it was amazingly civil, really, when you think about it. I mean, it was, you know, metaphorically, it felt like a civil war. But there are an awful lot of countries where that would have been substantially more toxic and substantially more aggressive. And, yeah, in France, there would have been cars burning all over the place. I mean, maybe we should have burnt more cars. I mean, it went to the, I don't think we should have burnt more cars, by the way. Don't burn cars. You know, so those, those Remain rallies were extraordinary because millions of people... And they sort of picked up their own litter and had very witty placards. It was like a kind of the, it's like the sort of paramilitary wing of a Radio 4 panel show. It was sort of, you know, it was all incredibly arched and clever and ultimately could achieve nothing. And and the, the, the sad and the bitter thing is, if all those people, they hardly needed any police officers there. If they all rioted, you know, it, obviously it would have been appalling, but it would have had, you know, the, the outcome might have been different. You know what I mean? And that's an awful thing to kind of, contemplate but mm. you know that's those cultural those those cultural complexities i don't think we've really had a chance to process so much of that because then by the time you got to 2019 get brexit done was this very powerful resonant message of let's just stop talking about this mm. and it won with a landslide yeah i mean it's a long cycle of demonstrations generally achieving nothing in british politics i mean iraq war achieved nothing. And I and I wanted to get onto the Iraq war because it reminded me when I was reading your book of something that happened around that time. It was at the time of that march, and uh, which was also very, very big. Millions, I think two million people went on that march. I remember a colleague asking me if I was going to go on it. And I said, uh, no, it's I don't see any point. It won't change anything. And I was right. Of course, it didn't change anything. But the fact was that at that time, I was in a very complacent place and you talk about this in the book and the kind of mood that 
especially living in London, you felt often in the late 90s and 2000s where your people were in charge and there were bad, there was bad stuff happening, but really it was easier just to, you know, just to mock a bit and, and live with it. And I remember doing a lot of things like watching the Jon Stewart show. And for me, that was kind of political engagement, as well as my job, obviously, because it was all, it, it all just took place on a not terribly meaningful level. Is this something that you feel has happened as well to, particularly to our generation? Certainly, I, I don't know whether it's, I think it's unique to our generation, but I do think looking back, that the, the the pure accident of reaching my early 20s in the mid 90s when it's not just in the UK I mean it's happened that there was just it, people were so fed up with the long conservative rule that uh, and you know it, Labour still had a dominance in Scotland so they could win very big very easily and Blair was an immensely talented politician there are all sorts of things going on there but just the sense that the entire country had gone, oh, we don't want the Tories anymore, fantastic. And the economy was growing. Culturally, London, you know, it was the sort of era of cool Britannia. You could feel that you were the capital of the world. You could still afford my first my first job, proper job after university in, in sort of adjacent to journalism, wasn't really journalism. But I think I, I think my starting salary was £11,000 per annum. And on that, I could rent with some friends we had a flat in sort of Kennington Stockwell borders, just like almost next to the Oval Cricket Ground. I, I, I don't, I can't begin to imagine what that would cost now. But you know, so just the, how extraordinarily lucky, and, and my local authority had paid fees from a university. I mean, it was just, you know, drenched with these privileges that come, that Gen X had. And okay, we're not boomers, but Gen X, we still got, got pretty lucky. And then and I think I was sort of aware of that, but thinking this is a great time to be young, you know, uh, lucky old me, I'm in London having a well of a time. What I hadn't fully appreciated is that the wider context of the Cold War was over. You had this budget dividend that you didn't have to spend on defence as much. You could put it into other things. There was just a, a global, the great moderation in economics, they call it, the sort of the vast, there was a much bigger apparatus of complacency going on. And that I only became more aware of, I think, after, actually not even after Iraq, because with the Iraq war, that, there was a lot of discrediting of politics that went on there. But actually, I was living abroad at that time. I was a foreign correspondent, and I looked in at that from a slightly different angle. It was when I came back, and then you had the financial crisis. That was, I think, when I started to think, yeah, you've really taken your eye off a lot of balls here in terms of what's actually going on in this country and in the politics. Yeah, it was like things can only get better became things will only get better. Exactly. <laughs> and the whole end of history narrative somehow, you know, even if you if you didn't read Fukuyama, you you still bought into it that it things were there, there were fewer wars, there were more democracies, there were fewer autocracies. It, all over the world, there was a sense that things were improving, and yet there were things going on. If we had only been looking, and especially as you all know in Russia, that we just didn't pay enough attention to. Well, well the interesting one is and that. I mean, when I was writing about this. I, the thing that I kept coming back to me was, well, hang on, nine eleven, right? That was that was history. Definitely was that had definitely happened then. Mm. That was big, but then actually you look back and and there was a lot of talk and stress about, oh, there's this threat to liberal democratic values and civilization and and jihadi terrorism is thing. But even then, it was all came from this incredibly still kind of arrogant, patronizing place, which is, well, these people are just sort of reactionary medievalists who just can't cope with secular modernity and. They're not. They're still a threat to life, but it's not actually a rival system that people. It's not not like in the Cold War where you had 
people saying, no, maybe we should actually be more like East Germany rather than West Germany. I mean, as people did, wrongly, in my view. And so this idea that you could sort of almost patronize the alternatives, even while being afraid of it, afraid of them, meant that that almost that episode didn't register as a significant turning point when from that from a period we're, re we're really talking about this kind of 1989 or an economic consensus that because of Thatcher Reagan probably starts 1979 into the geopolitical complacency 1989 through to yeah 2007 2008 I think. So to return to Brexit briefly, we've seen we've done Brexit. We haven't really done Brexit, obviously, but nominally we've done Brexit. And I keep hearing that the Remain Leave divisions are no longer as salient as they were, which is a good thing. And yet we are constantly being pushed into the same mindsets. And the playbook that worked so well in 20, 2015 and 2016 just keeps being brought out again with things like the culture wars. And to me, it seems to function as a cycle of provocation that just builds and builds, where you are constantly provoked. And, and, and almost, it's not even, there's not even a massive ideology, I think, behind it. It's more of a cycle where you say something which you know will be rewarded because of the systems we have put in place and the social media in particular, but it extends beyond social media to journalism more widely. You are rewarded for moving to the extremes. You, you mentioned in the book that you have failed the question time selection process before. Tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, so I, I went on a Politics Live, or with its pre-cut, so I can't remember what it was called, the one that Andrew Neil presented, and sort of sounded off a bit about Brexit, uh, and someone clipped that, and it went on YouTube and went viral. Almost immediately, for the first time ever, a quest this sort of question time book has phoned me up and essentially sort of go, oh, you seem to have opinions and lots of people are sharing them. Great. Maybe, well, maybe you'd like to be on question time. I said, sure, yeah, I'm vain. I, I like going on telly. I'll be on question time. And then they had this weird conversation where they so the book would ask me a series of questions uh, like, you know, okay, so, you know, welfare reform. For or against, like, well, it depends. You know, it depends what you're trying to do, what you're trying to achieve. And some bits, you know, if it's just a pretext to take money away from you know, people who desperately need it, that's a bad thing. But if you're adjusting the incentives to get, you know, you, you understand it's complicated. Or immigration, for or against. Well, you know, obviously no country in the world just has zero border controls. You have to have some mechanism for understanding who's in and not in your country. But if it becomes a, a sort of rhetorical cudgel to just mobilize xenophobic sentiment, no, I'm not going to be on the side of that, but it's complicated. And then we went through a bunch of these things and it's eventually I could hear the person on the other end of the line sort of getting more and more despondent as I kept saying, it depends, it's complicated on the one hand, on the other. And after a while, it's actually, I it sort of stopped the conversation and said, I think I'm not the guest you're looking for. And they went, no, 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 you're not. Um, and so I didn't go on question time, which was probably for the best. But that sense of, I'm going back to what you were saying before, I think was uh, in terms of the systems and the, the economic system that is in place within digital media in particular to accelerate polarization, I think is very interesting. And two things happen there. One is, you know, and and I, we see this. I see this in when I write, and because I, you can see the sort of back end on the website and what's getting shared and what's not. And if someone writes something very provocative or extreme, you basically get a double hit because it gets shared by the people who passionately agree with it, 
and it gets shared by the people who passionately hate it and hold it up as an emblem of everything that's wrong. And that reflects something that's going on that's quite interesting in this sort of the wider polarization that you're talking about, because I think there is a myth that because we we all you know, get our information on the internet mostly, we occupy these terribly narrow information silos and we only see things that confirm our biases. And that's half true. Actually, and you know, the data show this, we see a much wider range of views than we ever used to. I mean, you and I are old enough to remember that you know, when there were only three channels on TV and there might be one newspaper in the house that your parents bought. And so clearly you were getting less of, you know, it was, that was an incredibly narrow set of data. Like the idea that we're now more narrow than that, it can't possibly be true. But the problem is when you are seeing, you know, I see lots and lots of leave, pro-leave opinions, but I see them presented to me by Remainers saying, look at this idiot. So the, 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 the sort of pseudo diversity that you encounter is actually part of a polarizing process. And there's an e there are economic incentives for that because those clicks count twice. So the right are giving us something new to be enraged about and in the form of national conservatism, which is something that I was barely aware of a week ago, but now it seems to be all over <laughs> my social media feeds, all over my, the things I read. And there's a lot of rage on the left about national conservatism. How, how should we respond to national conservatism? Again, I think you know, it's a big win for for them, for the national conservative movement, which is an international thing. It gets, essentially, it's just, you know, as, as I'm sure people listening to this are probably now aware that it's sort of comes out of a, uh, a conversation between the sort of the US Republican rights. Uh, there's this Israeli right-wing character who, who, whose name I now can't recall. Uh, it sort of has it's sort of crept into sort of urbanism and, and that sort of East Central and East European form of nationalism. And it's not that, for want of a better word, indigenous to British conservatism. Uh, and you felt that very strongly when you saw some of the speeches that are being made at this convention that everyone's been talking about this week in some of the very religious and evangelical dimension to it, or the conversations about, there was one conservative MP who was talking about sort of birth rates and fertility. And that's a big anxiety in countries like Poland and Hungary, where a lot of the young people have, might have left, you know, they came to work in the UK when we had free movement and other countries. And this idea that you're being, this sort of great replacement anxiety somehow, that your healthy white Christian stock is going to somehow be replaced by Muslims who are coming from, that's not, actually, obviously mad racist nationalists in this country feel that, but it's not actually as resonant a part of the mainstream discourse as, for example, why isn't the NHS working? <laughs> or why can't I afford uh, just to even get a shop at Lidl anymore? And so the, the answer to your question, I think, is that, don't panic. Like what these people want is exactly what you're saying. They, they held this big conference. They got Suella Braveman to talk. They got Michael Gove to talk. So there's a Westminster and a lobby system that would much rather go to a carnival than pay attention to policy detail. Went and had a great old jamboree picnic with some slightly crazy people and wrote it all up nonstop for three days. And that inflates it into something that it doesn't deserve. So I think it is important to say, well, yeah, some mad people who are good at mobilizing media attention let off a few fireworks and predictably a large part of the Westminster political journalism sort of scene went ooh and ah because the fireworks went off. Does that mean that this is the way we're going in, in politics? I think it's significant in terms of what might happen to the Conservative Party in opposition. In that case, then the, there's a consequent question from that, which is if the Tories in opposition get captured by this kind of stuff, will the 
wider cultural apparatus of conservatism, by which I mean the Mail, the Telegraph, you know, and the cheerleaders and the think tanks, go with that, as they have done in the US, with the sort of madness of the Republican Party, or will they behave a little bit more like they did in the mid and late 90s and go, oh dear, the Conservative Party has become completely ridiculous. Let's laugh at them and agree with all the people who are pointing and laughing and going, actually, you're like maximum 20% of the country grow up. And I don't know which way that will go. But obviously, if it's the former, we've got a problem on our hands because then it does get pushed into it becomes normalized and it does become part of the cultural mainstream. So this isn't a self-help podcast. You know, we're not we're not in the business of uh, explaining exactly what you should do to stop being in, in rage. But what do you do when you start cause, to feel the rage build? I think we all have this. Is it a question of just logging off Twitter? Well, what even physically do you do? Do you go for a run? What's, what's, your, what's your response when it just starts pressing in and you want to tweet something really angry or shout at someone? Well, definitely. Well, I have two. There's two I said. I mean, I have available to me something which is, I suppose, is relatively kind of niche, which is I just can remember what it feels like having a massive heart attack. And I can actually sort of picture myself sort of basically on the pavement dying and thinking, let's not go back there. So that's actually a relatively straightforward kind of cognitive heuristic that is available to me, but I'm not recommending that to other people. Definitely, I think the Twitter thing or, or just social media generally is really important. In just, it, it is useful, it's a tool, and I have fun engaging with people mostly who I agree with, but also I get exposed to interesting articles and things. I don't, I don't want to switch the social media off, but it is important to remember that some of the anger you feel in response to that is not actually your anger it's it's synthetic anger that is being implanted in you and also there is this you, know, you don't it doesn't need to be the first thing you look at in the morning and the last thing you see at night but that's yeah so clearly just sort of creating some barrier between yourself and the thing that's going to make you angry but also i think it really helps or the sort of the, the processes the sort of mental process that i find quite interesting for this is understanding the difference between opinions and judgments that are formed as an analysis of the world that's outside you. So politics, how it works. Is it a good idea to do this? Should this policy be pursued? Is that a, a, a rational argument? And then values and opinions that are sacred to you. And by sacred, I mean, there's a, sort of very, it's a very specific psychological term, which means a sense, some proposition that has fused with your innermost sense of identity so that when someone criticizes it, or disagrees with it, you don't hear a rational sort of proposition challenging something you think might be true. You feel a visceral attack on you and yourself. And we've all got them. And sometimes it might be something banal, like your support for a football club. But it might also be something like if you're you know, on the US right, your belief in the sacred right of Americans to have as many guns as they want, which from the outside looks mad. And if you say, clearly, you shouldn't sell automatic weapons in the supermarket, that's a stupid idea. You know, only a mad person would think that. But no, that person is is hearing. Well, I hate America and I hate freedom, and it, and so and we all have some element of what's sacred. And but when if someone feels their sacred values criticised, they take it as a personal attack. When you when you when you're attacked personally, you get that kind of adrenaline fight or flight response, and you become aggressive. Uh, and I think there's a lot of what goes on, and it's a long way of answering your question, but I just, I do think that it's important to understand that most of the time, the core, the root of anger and rage is fear. And so you think, what is this person who's being 
deeply unpleasant. Like Lee Anderson, his political persona presents as really deeply unpleasant and he says some deeply unpleasant things. So you think, what is he afraid of? That is, there's something there, isn't there? He's, it is, the, the sense that the world he knows is being taken away from him somehow, or he's not being respected enough, even though he's an MP. There's something, And once you see it from that point of view, not only does it mean you can be less angry yourself, but I think it's just more interesting as an avenue for analysis to ask to ask that question than what's the snarky thing I can say about him to make him even angrier. So understanding the psychology of the people who are saying things that you find outrageous. That's a much more efficient way of putting what I just said. Yeah. <laughs> but you put it a lot more eloquently. Raphael, thanks so much for talking to me. Uh, thank you for having me uh, in the bunker and on the bunker. And Politics, A Survivor's Guide is published by Atlantic Books. If you want to carry on being able to survive politics, then don't just buy Raphael's book, although please do that because it is excellent. But consider backing us on Patreon too. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.